Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is it is April 19th of 2012, and our guest tonight is Cynthia Hoffman. And before I start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge laylet support group for anyone who wants to make a positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork, hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest tonight is Cynthia Hoffman, marriage and family therapist from San Francisco, does individual counseling, couples counseling, also harm reduction groups. She's here with us right now. We're going to bring her on. Cynthia, how are you doing this evening? I'm good, thanks. How's it going? Well, everything's good. Thank you so much for being our guest tonight. Great. so tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get involved in being a marriage and family therapist, and what led you to harm reduction therapy? Okay. Um, well, let's see. So uh, marriage and family therapy was my second career. My first career, if you can believe it, was as an accountant. And when I would sit in my cubicle at work, I would notice that I always had a line of people that wanted to sit and come and, and talk with me in my cubicle. So I thought, well, maybe maybe there's something to this. And I'd always been interested in psychology. So I went back to school and um, became a marriage and family therapist. While I was in school, um, I had, you know, you only get one substance use class in graduate programs, if any. Mm. And I was lucky enough to um, be in a substance use class where Pat Denning was the guest speaker. This was in, I guess, 97, 98. Mm -hmm. And um, until that point, everything that I'd heard was, you know, about the disease model of addiction um, and how 12-step was the only way and that, um, you know, abstinence was the only way and everything else was denial and yada, yada, you know the drill. Um, So in comes Pat in her wonderful Pat way and just blew my mind. As, as she did with a lot of the uh, of the classmates who had many, many questions for her. Um, it wasn't that it didn't feel right. What she was saying felt so right, but it was so different than anything that I'd heard to that point. Um, I've been thinking a lot about harm reduction as, you know, just common sense. It's mm-hmm. just common sense. And um, that when you look, when I look more and more at uh different, you know, at the more traditional substance use treatment, um, you you see that it it just doesn't make a lot of sense. So anyway, so that was my introduction to it. Um, Shortly after I graduated, I got a job in a um, dual diagnosis program working as one of the um, clinical case managers. And um, we were told, uh, the team that I was on was told to create a harm reduction curriculum So this was very exciting because I didn't know much other than what Pat had said um, during that class uh, and the conversations that ensued after that. But I didn't know much, so I got to do a lot of um, a lot of reading and a lot of looking around um, to find different ways to work with the clients that I was working with. Um, They were severely mentally ill, formerly homeless, or homeless. 
uh, criminal justice-involved clients. And harm reduction was really the only way to go. Um, so anyway, I got to do a lot of um, research, and I got to create a lot of uh, group um, curriculum. Um, we got to present our uh, program at the... Um, the first harm reduction, it wasn't the harm reduction conference, I always forget, I think it was called Bridge something, I always forget what it was, it was in, mm-hmm. I believe, 2000 or 2001 in San Francisco, and we got to present that program, and from there, I was just, it was very excited um, to use harm reduction, and I used it more and more. So that's sort of how I got started in harm reduction. Um, since you mentioned the conference, the conference is coming up again in November of this year. Have you attended the National Harm Reduction Conference? Yeah, I, I attended. I, I've been attending it the last three or four times. Um, last year I presented on working with severely mentally ill populations. Um, this year I'm going to present on working with forensic populations, um, people in the criminal justice system. Um, that's something that I do outside of my private practice. Um, so, yeah, I go. It's fun. It's uh, lots of great information, and just the spirit of it is fantastic. Um, I also, this year, for the first time, attended the Drug Policy Alliance Conference, and that was fantastic as well. Well, I'll probably be seeing you there uh, in November. I probably November. will, yeah. I just sent my abstracts in earlier this afternoon. So, ah. uh, tell me a little bit more about the, uh, this forensic work that you were doing with the, that's outside your private practice. So, what I do is I work with uh, parole reentry uh, program. So, folks that um, have ha- been having a difficult time getting off of parole because they can't. Um, you know, they for either for mental health reasons or substance use reasons or um, cognitive reasons, they can't follow the, what's necessary for them to get off parole and they need extra help. And so I'm on the team of folks that give that extra help. So I'm a therapist on that team. Um, so we'll have case managers. We have a lot of peers, um, folks who were on parole themselves or may may even be on parole now. Um, that help the um, uh, parolees navigate through various systems um, to get whatever monies that they need to get or to get the housing that they need. It's a really great um, program, uh, and I and I enjoy working working with the parolees. Um, it's something that I do part time. Well, it's a topic that's of great interest to me. I think. Uh we need to work a lot more with the population that are in prison or coming out of prison and talk to them about harm reduction strategies. I mean, telling... Mm-hmm. Telling people that are, you know, leaving prison that, you know, not only sh- should they not use drugs, but they should never drink alcohol again for the rest of their lives, is it's unreasonable, and it's an unreasonable expectation, I think. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, different parole agents work in different ways, and, um, you know, some some get the concept of harm reduction and some don't. Um, and... So, you know, part of my job is to is to work with the agents around individualized. You know, harm reduction is about individualized treatment plans. Mm-hmm. And when you're working with the criminal justice system, there's not a lot of 
individualized stuff going on. Um, so you really have to, it's, it's a, you know, some combination of working with the parolees and working within the system um, to help these folks get off of, you know, get off parole and and begin to, you know, do other things. They get stuck in this loop. And um, you know, and they get uh, and they get arrested for possession, and then they their parole is extended. You know, drug users get arrested for possession of small amounts of drugs, and then their parole is extended. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, treating marijuana the same as heroin is doesn't make sense either. Right. We're we're very lucky in San Francisco that that's not the case. Well, that is very good because it's still a huge problem in uh, New York State, in New York City. Um, they were trying to work on some laws here to stop. Um, they had a problem in New York City. You know, the, the police officers would ask people to empty their pockets. And if there was marijuana, well, there's a different crime for displaying it than possessing it. It's much heavier for displaying it. But you were forcing them. So they, wow. were, busting, they were busting a lot of people, you know, that they were forcing to display it. Um they were trying to rescind that law. Well, they did, you know, rescind it lately, but apparently there's still huge problems with the police uh, uh, doing this. Um, it's a big problem in New York City. Wow, oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, I mean, we really are here in San Francisco. We're really in this nice little bubble. I mean, we still have our issues, certainly. Um, but when it comes to marijuana, there is a lot of acceptance, even even in the parole parole department. Um, yeah, unfortunately, so, in, in New York City, there's this huge discrepancy on racial lines uh, and economic lines, too. But, you know, uh, the rich white people with marijuana possession are treated far differently than poor black people. Absolutely. Rich and poor are treated differently, and black and white are treated differently. So it's all for you know, criteria are involved. And when you're poor and black, you get hit, you know, both ways. So it's really... Right. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, your individual and couple therapy counseling that you do in San Francisco. Sure. So um, I've been doing this um, for, as, for as long as I've been doing uh, the community work. I've always done a little bit of both because um, I like... I like working both in the community work and I also like working in the private sector. Um, so I have been uh, seeing individuals and couples. Um, individuals I see, um, let's see, so I do obviously see people that have substance use issues or want to explore their substance use and, um, you know, find different ways to manage it a little bit better. Um, I also see people with anxiety and depression or people that have interpersonal difficulties, um, you know, getting along at work or getting along at home. Um, let's see, and then couples, uh, I will absolutely see couples where one or the other or both um, are participating in some substance use and the other is not accepting it um, or it's starting to cause, you know, cause trouble um, so I will work with that. Um, people that are in high conflict, um, I have a, a very strange tolerance for that. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm able to, you know, kind of be uh, a good referee <laughs> in addition <laughs> to um, looking at, of course, 
the the family reasons, the you know pre- previous family reasons why people do what they do in relationship, um, as well as teaching skills, uh, communication skills, and uh, I also work with couples that are just looking for some premarital counseling, or want to deepen their relationship, or having some you know specific issues like ar- around sexual behavior. Um, yeah, so those are some of the things that I specialize in when working with individuals and couples. Well, I'm particularly interested in how you mediate when uh, one partner in the relationship, let's say it's a, it's a marriage and one partner, one spouse says, you know, to the other, uh, you should never use drugs, you should be abstinent from everything, you shouldn't drink any alcohol, and, you know, the other is resistant and saying, you know, I enjoy... I enjoy my drugs or I enjoy my alcohol, and how do you mediate in that situation? Well, I mean, it's a really tough situation because most of what's out there is, you know, drugs are bad and you shouldn't do them, and, you know, therefore your partner shouldn't do them, and if he he or she does them, then they're bad too. So, you know, it's really a lot about education about education, about what harm reduction is and how harm reduction works, and focusing on the behavior and not the drug use is super important. Um, And so, you know, reducing anxiety, I mean, there's a lot of worry for the person that's not the, well, there's a lot of worry for both uh, parties. Or And I also work with polyamorous couples uh, or families, rather, so there could be more than two people in the room. so it's difficult because it's it's kind of unlearning something, which is, you know, took a few years for me to unlearn after my initial introduction to harm reduction. Um, so there's a lot of education involved, I guess, and there's a lot of focusing on behavior. So, And that's tough. That's tough for somebody, especially if somebody has come up through 12-step. Um, let's say their partner... Uh, was in 12-step for a long period of time and made a a pretty clear decision that they wanted to start drinking wine again Mm -hmm. Um, and are doing that. But, of course, the the, uh, partner that uh, has experienced some pretty tough times with the drinking person um, is going to have a lot of anxiety. So that's what I work with. I work with the anxiety um, and, you know, validate the fear. Um, and also educate about what harm reduction is and how it can work. And, you know, you um, people need to test it out in their relationship. Let's see what works. Does this work? What comes up for you then? So really giving people some some ideas of how to go and be in the world and, and think about it and then come back and talk about it. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I think it does make sense. And people have been uh, given some of these mythologies that um, all mood-altering substances are cross-addictive. You know, if you use one, then it means that you're going to use the other, except then they make the exception of nicotine and caffeine, even though nicotine is the most addictive drug known to man. Right, right. But somehow someone never says, well, you can't smoke that cigarette, it's going to make you drink a bottle of whiskey immediately. Mm They've seen too many AA members smoking cigarettes, I guess, and not running out for a drink. But you know, they really—they're not necessarily across addictive. You know, they're 
Well, there are some dangers, you know, because alcohol is disinhibiting. You know, if you drink in an environment where you used to do your heroin and used to buy your heroin, you might lose your inhibitions and buy it again. But that's not necessarily the same if you're having a glass of champagne at your friend's wedding. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, I take each thing individually. Um, the for for some people, and you know, it's not to say that some people don't do better with abstinence. Mm-hmm. There are a few <laughs> that that do better with abstinence, um, but generally, people tend to do a really good job of moderating and managing their use when they are given the right tools, and when they are validated, and when they, you know, are are not shamed. Absolutely. Yeah, one friend of mine online that I've been uh, talking to, uh, he's a therapist, and he keeps saying, you know, I'm trying to teach these people moderation skills, and to my surprise, they keep deciding to jump into abstinence all on their own, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And sometimes Once, people do decide to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, what's or they the co- do it for extended periods of time. Mm-hmm. And once the coercion is gone, you see, that's what happens when they're not being coerced into being abstinent. And then suddenly they can say, well, maybe that's my best idea. And they they don't have to fight against it. Right, right. There's nothing to rebel against. So I see that you operate some harm reduction therapy groups as well. And tell me about the harm reduction groups. Yeah, I I just have a blast with those. so I have two different groups. I have an eight-week group, and in that eight-week group, um, we I teach skills. Um, there's, there's actually I do a lot of different things. So um, some of the things that I do is we do some moderate goal setting. Um, we talk about the, you know, a lot of education about the stages of change, um, education about the particular drugs um, that the clients are using. So I may give them an assignment, like one of my assignments is, you know, go this week and read up about speed. I have, you know, clients that, you know, various drugs, and and bring back to the group three things that you didn't know about it. Um, just by so this is a way by way of education. Um, I definitely um, do do the groups from a motivational interviewing standpoint. You know, being very affirming and reflecting back to the clients, um, do some skill building around anxiety um, and around triggers, um, uh, do some skill building around what to do when, you know, depressed or whatever the thing is that seems to um, increase use for the client. Um, We may, you know, the topics may change in the, in this first eight weeks, the topics may change. For instance, uh, Recently, I had a group where um, there were a lot of drinkers in the group, and they had a lot of trouble sleeping. Um, and so we did, we spent, you know, uh, one session talking about sleep hygiene and um, different things, and, and everybody shared, like, their different tips for getting to sleep and being able to stay asleep, and it was so helpful. You know, so I have sort of this, list of things that we talk about, but sometimes we may need to talk about, you know, something else because, you know, talking about the positive behaviors as well 
that can help you moderate, you know, whether it's eating better, sleeping better, um, you know, getting out with friends more, um, using uh, most of the clients that, that I see come, not all, but most do come from um, therapists in the area. And so, you know, talking about how to use your therapy um, when you're talking about substance use. Um, and then um, when you're done with the eight-week group, which is more of a psychoeducational group, and I do a lot more talking in those groups, um, then there's a 12-week process group. Um, and in that group, it's, it, there's very little structure. Um, there's a check-in. There's a check-in regarding the goals that you may have set the previous week. And when I talk about goal setting, it might be getting to bed earlier. It might be, you know, I'm going to have two cups less of coffee this week, you know, because then what ends up happening is if I drink too much coffee, then I need wine to wind down. Um, So the goals are very individualized and not necessarily around substance use. Um, And the other thing that happens in the 12-week group is, you know, the client's, you know, start to really have relationships with one another around not uh, around meeting their goals mm-hmm. and around supporting each other um, in a very non-judgmental, non-shaming way. So I, I really enjoy working in these groups. Um, they're in my private practice office, and it's usually a small group, four to six people. Um, and many people do the groups over and over again because there's nothing really out there. You know, the the beauty of of, of some 12-step is that there's a meeting every day. There's several meetings every day. Mm-hmm. But for the person that wants to wants to moderate, there's very little out there, um, especially if they want to moderate drug use, not just alcohol use. There's, you know, there's a couple of different things for alcohol use, but there's almost nothing for drug use. Um, so people end up doing, co- coming back and doing it over and over, coming back for a tune-up. It's really, it's really a lot of fun, and I see a lot of people really just trying to, the first few weeks, just really trying to twist their mind around what harm reduction is. Now, since you mentioned um, groups for alcohol use, um, what I noticed, I used to be part of moderation management. Actually, I used to work for them, and we found that um, they have some very strictly defined limits that people should stay in, and that's good for a lot, some people. I mean, some people really like that structure. There were another, there was another subset of people that that wasn't working for, and that's actually how we came to found the HAMS program, the Harm Reduction for Alcohol program, because mm-hmm. you know there were some people that could not, uh, you know, they weren't comfortable with that kind of strictly defined limits, and they might say, well. I want to stop drinking and driving because it's really stupid, but I want to get drunk every night. Uh, you know, our group is the only one where you can come in and say that, and we'll say, that's a really good idea. It's much better. It's, yeah, it's much better than drinking and driving. So, um, yeah, there are some, and you know, I think there should be many different approaches for many different people, you know. So moderation management is a good fit for some. We have our group that fits some other people. There are other people that want to abstain. They don't like the religious overtones of the 12-step, but they might like smart recovery or SOS. And then there are some people that are very comfortable with 12-step groups. So having a nice menu, I think, is a good thing. So many people have many options. 
Right, and that's unfortunately there's just not a lot of options. I mean, we're, again, in San Francisco, we're lucky we have some options here. Um, but generally, there's not, and even that, those are limited. So. Now, you've worked a lot with uh, dual diagnosis, and you're a therapist. Yeah. So what kind of things do you find uh, accompany substance abuse? What kind of uh, uh, difficulties, and uh, what are skills to deal with the various things? Well, uh, you know, anxiety is just, such a big one, um, and different ways to deal with anxiety, and not just like in the moment, but long-term anxiety. So, for instance, getting that sleep that you need, um, being able to eat properly, exercise, you know, um, having that as part of sort of the prescription, um, being able to be assertive, uh, which a lot of people, you know, mask that. Uh, mm-hmm. They they feel uncomfortable being assertive, and so it's like so teaching some skills around assertiveness. When I work in the community, I'm working, uh, you know, not in the private sector. I'm working with more um, intensive, uh, intensively diagnosed uh, folks. So, um, but those skills still apply. The still the skills around, um, you know, how you deal with depression um, still apply. Uh, so, so that's a lot of what I talk about um, when I'm working with newly diagnosed folks, and you know, not not everybody that drinks and uses, you know, the the, the self medication movement. I do think that there are some people that use drugs and alcohol to self medicate. Absolutely. Do I think everybody does that? No, I don't. I think people, you know, make choices to drink and use the way that they want to drink and use, um, and sometimes it gets out of hand or, you know, they need to reel it in a little bit. Mm-hmm. So um, so some of the skills, again, around anxiety, around depression, um, and just around generally healthy habits, you know, like from a holistic point of view, what are some healthy habits that one can have um, when they are trying to deal with, uh, you know, the various symptoms that they experience? And do you see a connection between trauma and substance use? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I'm sorry I didn't say that one. Absolutely, there, there, there's such a such a huge connection there. Um, and so many of the people that I've worked with, uh, particularly in community work, um, and certainly uh, in the criminal justice population that I work with, um, there's just so much trauma and there's so much trying to mask the trauma and trying to deal with the trauma by using substances. Um, so absolutely. Uh, it's it's really important. You know, now the, the, the flavor of the day is to be trauma-informed. And it's really true. Um, I think we, we do have to recognize, you know, even, and not just the extreme examples like I see with the parolees, um, but the examples of people coming up in homes where there was, you know, a lot of yelling and screaming. Um, different people react differently to those. Some people come come up through that, and because of their temperament, they're fine. Um, and some people come up through that, and because they came into the world pretty anxious, you know, they become traumatized. So it is important to recognize that, and that kind of kind of, that's an interesting. Thing that comes up in groups sometimes, um, you know, you, you like hit a nerve, 
um, and to recognize that and to be able to deal with that in a group setting um, can be challenging. Well, I think it's a really important issue to talk about, especially because there are still substance abuse treatment programs out there that say that the answer is tough love. And what they really are doing is re-traumatizing people that are already using out of trauma. And they use more, you know, they use more drugs after treatment than before. Yes, yes. You know, I I have so many people that come to group and they um they talk about feeling so shamed um when attending twelve step and that it just they recognize that it just didn't work for them, that they didn't need to feel more shame, they needed to feel less shame, and they needed to feel okay about who they were um and that maybe they had some behavior that they could change, but who they were generally they needed to feel good about. And unfortunately, uh, many of the abstinence-based programs that use that um, do re-traumatize. You're absolutely right. Okay, that leads us into the last question I have, which is about doing couples therapy. And uh, do you find that, you know, when the one spouse is really confrontive to the drug-using spouse, that, you know, it, it keeps them using, and if they can back off it, it actually helps them use less? Yes, yes, that's absolutely true um, in many circumstances. And I think, you know, there is a dynamic that happens. Um, and so in working with couples, to point out that the dynamic, and that, that can very well be one of the dynamics that happen, is that, you know, you get frustrated and you, you know, say, uh, I'm just going to do it anyway. Um, uh so, yeah, absolutely, that can happen with couples. Um, and it can happen the other way around, too. I mean, the, the person can, you know, um, the person who's drinking or using can do some mild manipulating, too. So there's, you know, it's just about recognizing that um, in the session and pointing it out in a gentle, non-shaming way um, and trying to figure out why they have the dynamic that they have. And, you know, as a therapist, holding that changing this dynamic immediately may not be so helpful, that we might need to ease into changing the dynamic. Do you know what I mean? Does that make Mm -hmm, sense? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You said that's one dynamic of several that you see. Could you give me a brief outline of the other dynamics that you commonly see coming up? Well, I think that there's a lot of um, secrecy um, because of the nature of substance use, because because of how substance use has been portrayed. So there's a lot of secrecy. There's a lot of mistrust. Um, again, there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, misconception about what needs to happen in order for the couple to do better together. Um, and so they have to sort of undo all of that. Um, there's a lot of ambivalence, you know, in any with any substance use, there's there's ambivalence. The substance user may be ambivalent about changing, but also the the person who is um, who's living with the substance user may be ambivalent about changing their behavior. And um, you know, they they think, well, we fix the other person, um, and and that'll fix it. 
So, you know, it's about just about recognizing all of those different patterns and trying to work with those. Um, yeah. Okay, that puts us about out of time. I want to thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Cynthia Hoffman. Thank you so much. This has been fun. Thanks a lot. And everybody, come back next week at the same time when our guest will be Andrew Barron's father, who is the founder of Christians Against Prohibition. And good night, everyone, and see you next week. <laughs>